chapter 19. I'm sorry, 18. I'm eager to get to 19, apparently. I've done that several times today. Uh, Genesis 18. John Payton was ordained by the Reformed Presbyterian Church back in March 23rd of 1858. Two weeks after his ordination, he married the woman he loved. Two weeks later, they with a friend left Scotland to travel by ship to the South Pacific to bring the gospel to a people who had never heard it. A very savage people. You remember it was uh, John Payton who had the man come to him and say, Why are you going? You will be eaten by cannibals. And certainly cannibals is who he and his wife and his friend were going to minister to. It was an incredibly dangerous journey that John Payton was embarking on. Uh, in these days before telephone, before email, uh, communication back home would often take many months. When he told his parents what he was doing, um, they all knew that they might not ever see him again. They knew that they might not ever see their, their future grandchildren. And I want to share with you something that I think is very moving. That John Payton wrote when he was an old man. And he was looking back on that day when he left his parents' home after uh, leaving them for the, for the last time to begin his life as a missionary. And uh, he, he was remembering that day. And here's, here's what he says. My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsel and his tears and his heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then, whenever memory steals me away to that scene. For his tears fell fast from his eyes when our eyes met each other, in looks for which all words would be vain. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence, and then he very solemnly said, God bless you, my son. May your Father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. And unable to say any more, his lips kept moving in a silent prayer. And in tears we embraced and we parted. I ran off as fast as I could and when about to turn a corner in the road where he would at last lose sight of me, I looked back and I saw him still standing with his head uncovered where I had left him gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I was round the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me any further. I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike looking for me. He did not see me. And after he had gazed long enough eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down and he set his face towards home. And he began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayer for me. 
I watched through blinding tears till His form faded from my gaze. And then hastening on my way, I vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or to dishonor such a father and mother as God had given unto me. The appearance of my father when we parted has often through life risen vividly in my mind, and it does so even now as if it was just an hour ago. In my earlier years particularly, when exposed to many temptations, his parting form has risen to be my guardian angel. It's no Phariseeism, but a deep gratitude which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped me to keep pure from prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of His hopes and that in all my Christian duties I might faithfully follow His shining example. Um, Dads, I think that's the kind of example we long to be. Uh, We long for our children because of our influence to follow hard after God every day of our lives. We want our children mainly to follow hard after God because of their love for God, but if they follow hard after God because of their love for us, well, that's good too. And we'll be very, very happy for that. I begin this way because, surprisingly, when we come back to Genesis 18 and we see why it is that the angel of the Lord pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, God Himself. Why is it that God is going to let Abraham in on what He's doing with this city called Sodom? And it turns out it has to do with parenting. It has to do with Abraham being a faithful father. You remember where we've been. The Lord and two angels have spent time at Abraham and Sarah's dwelling place. Now, They're on their way to Sodom with the intention of destroying the city. Abraham doesn't know this. And as the Lord begins to leave Abraham's tent and to go towards Sodom, He begins to explain to the two angels in the form of a question why it is that He's going to let Abraham in on what He's about to do. Pick up with me in verse 17. Verse 17 and 18. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? So that the first reason that the Lord gives for why he's going to let Abraham in on what he is doing through Sodom, what he's going to do to Sodom, is that from Abraham is going to come a great nation, and that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Which isn't very clear. (laughs) I mean, how how does that make sense, okay? So from Abraham is going to come a great nation, and, and from Abraham and this nation all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But why does that mean he needs to know ahead of time what you're about to do in Sodom, oh God? Well, it makes more sense if we keep reading. So look at verse 19. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham 
what he has promised him. So we see several things here. First, we, we see that God has chosen Abraham. You see that at the beginning of verse 19? For I have chosen him. And literally in the Hebrew it says, I have known him. Um, a lot of the translations that we use change that word known to chosen so that we get the idea. Um, this word know, we've talked about it a lot recently, uh, has this idea of intimate knowledge, of, of God having set his favor on someone. He, he has known them. Uh, last Sunday night, we talked about where Jesus says, uh, on the last day, depart from me, for I never knew you. What he means is, I never, I never had a relationship with you. I had never uh, set my saving graces upon you. Abraham has been known by God in the same way that Israel was to be known by God. Uh, Amos 3.2, God says to Israel, the nation of Israel, you only have I known of all the peoples of the earth. To which we say, God, don't you know all the peoples of the earth? Yes, but only Israel have I known, have I established a relationship with, have I set my special favor upon. Well, that's the word used here at the beginning of verse 19 about God's relationship with Abraham. It does have this idea of, of being chosen, and so most of our translations go ahead and, and render it that way so that we understand. God has chosen Abraham. Okay, but what's he chosen Abraham for? Well, we've already seen that in the last chapter, God made promises to Abraham, but the promises that God made to Abraham were not just to Abraham. God's promises of a, of a great nation and of an eternal land on which that nation will dwell and the promise that God will be their God forever and the promise that through them all the nations of the world will be blessed, those promises were made to Abraham and those promises were made to Abraham's descendants which is why the sign of circumcision was given, so that those promises would be passed down from generation to generation. And what did God require for those promises to come true? Well, we saw last week, Genesis 17, God required that they walk in faith, that they walk before Him, that they trust Him and strive to be blameless. So lives of faith is what was required from Abraham and his descendants if they were to have the promises. And now Abraham, as the father of this great nation that's about to come, has a heavy responsibility upon him to make sure that this nation starts out right. God has just announced that within a year, Abraham will have the promised son the son from whom this nation called Israel will come. Now is the time for Abraham to make sure he understands how important he is. it is that he teach his son well. He needs to make sure that Isaac is instructed in the ways of God because Isaac needs to make sure he instructs his sons in the way of God and his children. And as this nation becomes formed called Israel, we want to have a nation of people instructing their children, passing it down from generation to generation, the ways of God. Because what will happen if that doesn't occur? If a generation arises in Israel that doesn't have faith, Will they have the promises? You see why God wants Abraham to know what he's doing with Sodom. 
What's happening with Sodom stands as a warning to Abraham and to the nation of Israel who later received this book called Genesis. God is letting Abraham in on how it is that he deals with nations. And when a people, like the people of Sodom, become so ungodly and so full of sin that God's justice can bear it no longer, He will come in judgment. The idea here is that by letting Abraham in on what is happening ahead of time, he'll see everything that comes to pass. He'll know that God is the one doing it. He'll know why God is doing it, and it should stir in his heart to make sure that he raises his family well so that this will never happen to his descendants. That's the idea. Abraham never wants a day to come to his descendants, to the nation of Israel, like this day that has come the people of Sodom. And in the same way, folks, Genesis has been given to us. And this story of Sodom is meant to be a warning to us. Indeed, this story of Sodom is a warning to every nation in the world today. If we do not teach our children the ways of God, but allow generation after unbelieving generation to rise up and to become more ungodly than the generation before it, there will come a day when God will bear it no longer. In fact, if we were to look back over human history, we would see that this is the reason why kingdom after kingdom, empire after empire, rises up in history and ultimately is destroyed because God will bear with their sin no more. We could look at the Greek Empire, we could look at the Roman Empire, we could look at the Persian Empire. The empire grows, they get powerful, they fall into violence and sexual immorality, and they, they fall into gross unbelief and utter immorality. And then God brings another nation in to destroy them. God finds a way to wipe them out, and those empires no longer exist. And so there is a word here to our own nation, that if we continue to point our children away from God and away from His truth, the results for this nation we call America will be disastrous. There's also a word here for us who are Christians that we need to see how important it is that we instruct our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren in the ways of God. The end of verse 19 is very clear, right? That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Where there is faith, the promises will find fulfillment and they will come true. But where there is no faith, the promises are lost. Remember, Israel came to have something of the promises of God. They did become a nation. They were dwelling in the promised land. They did have with God with them and for them. They were stationed to make a huge difference in the world. And what happened? They fell into unbelief. We read of whole generations that arose in Israel that did not know the God of their parents. We're told that whole generations arose in Israel that did not know of what God did for Israel at the Red Sea. They did not know of what happened at Mount Sinai. We're told of utter failure of parents to instruct their children. 
And the result was great wickedness as they chased after other gods and fell into utter immorality. And ultimately, when God could bear it no more, what happened? They lost the promises. They lost the land. They ceased to be as a nation. According to Isaiah, the people of Israel ultimately became as wicked as the people of Sodom. Indeed, though Israel lasted well into the first century, by that time they were so full of unbelief and so poorly taught that they ended up killing their own Messiah, the very one for whom they should have been waiting all of this time, they killed. So we see how important it is for us to instruct our children well. And I would simply ask us, how are we doing? Not just as families, but as a church. How are we doing as grandparents? Whatever your role might be, how are we doing? Well, the Lord has now established why it is that he's letting Abraham in on what he's doing. Now, the Lord speaks directly to Abraham. Look at verse 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So God is saying several things to Abraham here. One, He's saying that he is very aware of the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Twice we have this word outcry. You remember when when Cain killed his brother Abel and God said that the voice of Abel's blood was crying to him from the ground? So also here, it appears that the cries of the sin that is being done in Sodom is coming up before God. Maybe it's the cries of the people who are being hurt and abused, victimized and murdered. Perhaps it's simply the cry of justice crying out for for, uh, vengeance to come. But every wrong that that had taken place in Sodom was crying out to God for justice. Now, by the way, we know that there's no such thing as a city that isn't full of sinners, right? (laughs) Because cities are made up of people, and people are sinners. So every city has sinners. So, So what was so bad here? Well, the condition of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain was very bad uniquely bad. We're told that the outcry is great. We are told that their sin is very grave. There's, a, there's a, a, an attempt here in, in the, well, you can see it even in your English translation, to show how grave, how great the sin of these particular cities were. The second thing that God tells Abraham is not just that he sees or hears the sin of the city, but that he is going to see if the sin of these cities is complete. Um, do you see that word altogether in verse 21? Altogether. Um, this is very difficult uh, in, in the Hebrew. I am not a Hebrew scholar. All I have to go on is, is my commentaries. But they all seem to say the same thing about this word, that it is an idiom. Uh, an idiom is a word that uh, it, it sounds like one thing, but it means something else. They said that this word altogether literally means completeness. And that the idea of it is that the time for judgment has come. Do you remember when God told Abraham, I'm not going to give you the promised land yet. 
I'm going to wait 400 years before your descendants come into the promised land because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Do you remember that? Remember that in Genesis? He says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And so we talked about this. There's this idea that there is a, a, a brink of sin. And, and, and the Amorites can build up their sin up to this point, and only at this point, when God's justice can bear it, I'm sorry, when God's patience can bear it no more, and His justice must step in, then He will come using the people of Israel to wipe out the Amorites. Well, that appears to be what's happening here when He uses this word altogether. He's saying, I'm going to go down, and I'm going to see if the cup of the sin of Sodom has reached its fullness, has come to the brink, to the edge. And if it has, well, then I will come in judgment. But if it hasn't, I will know it. And I will relent. And I will not bring punishment. Now, you, you might wonder why God needs to, uh, to go see. <laughs> right? Um, obviously, He doesn't. Obviously, He already knows all of the sin of Sodom. He's just said that to Abraham. But I hope you've, you've seen by now in our study of Genesis that God talks this way a lot. And what he's trying to show is that he is not going to judge Sodom rashly. He is not judging Sodom on a whim. He is not judging Sodom recklessly. He is judging Sodom in a very careful way. He is measuring the weight of their sin. He is going to go and investigate. In fact, we're going to see this next week, Genesis 19, the two angels. They go into Sodom and they investigate. They see the sin for themselves. They see how utterly terrible it is and how utterly lost this city is. And only after that careful weighing do they say, God's justice must step in. In other words, the patience and the long-suffering of God with human sin is being taught here. Because though God has every right to wipe out every sinner this very moment, He is being incredibly patient. His endurance of the sins of any city and of this world as a whole has a very high threshold. He bears with much for a long time that people might have time to turn and to repent. No one will be able to say on the last day that God was unfair in His judgment. When He comes to judge, He comes only because His patience has reached an end, but His patience is great. Well, that tells you how bad the situation in Sodom really is. And so now Abraham knows what's going on. Look at verse 22. Because this has long-term implications. He's learning how God deals with nations. He's learning how God will deal with Israel. It has short-term implications because he has a nephew that lives in Sodom. He's concerned about Lot. He's concerned about Lot's family. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. What would you be thinking? You've just been told that, that, that God is about to destroy this city that you can see from your own home. You can look down upon it. There it is. There's the hundreds, perhaps thousands of people living there. Your nephew lives there. What are you, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Well, look at verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So the two angels continue and head down towards Sodom. And we'll see what happens to them next week. But we have Abraham still standing here before the Lord. 
Actually, there's, there's a good possibility that uh, what this should read uh, in, in our Bibles is that the two men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but the Lord still stood before Abraham. It's unclear in the Hebrew whether it should be Abraham still stood before the Lord, the Lord still stood before Abraham, and you'd be surprised how many pages are spent in a debate over that. The point is, they're still together, and they're still talking. Okay, The Lord and Abraham are still together, they're still talking. So let's look at what happens. Let's go ahead and read the whole section, verses 23 through 33. Beginning of verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous within the city? I'm sorry, for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to dead with to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. You see Abraham's questions there in the verses. You see Abraham's question at the beginning, Will God sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will God's judgment come upon this wicked community, and will the righteous perish as well? To which you might say, now wait a minute, Justin. Aren't there none that are righteous? I mean, doesn't the Bible actually say there's none righteous? No, not one? Yes. But there, that's Paul talking, and he's speaking of righteous in the sense of perfection. There is no one who is perfect. We are all sinners, every one. That's not what God and Abraham are talking about here. When he's talking about, are there 50 righteous? What if there's 45? What if there's 40, 30, 20, 10? The righteous he's talking about are not perfect people. He's simply talking about people that know God and love God. He's simply talking about people who trust God and and by their faith they have been declared righteous in Christ. He's simply saying, as you go down to Sodom and you prepare to bring your judgment on that city, if you find just a few who truly know God and love God, Surely you will not destroy them. Won't you spare the city for their sake? Why is Abraham asking this? What's his motivation 
for asking these questions. Why does he want to see how low God will go? How far his mercy will go to spare this city? Let me give you three reasons. First, it seems very likely that this has to do with Israel. Remember, God has just said that the whole reason he has told Abraham what he's about to do is because of the nation that's going to come from him. So we must read what's happening here in terms of the nation that's going to come from him. And so God has just said this city is about to be destroyed. Abraham wants to know, well, how bad must the people be for God to come and to destroy them? How few righteous must there be in that city for God to wipe them out? And he wants to know for Israel's sake. Indeed, this was written down for Israel's sake so that that nation, as they looked at themselves falling away from God, falling away from His Word, could look and see if there are but 50 righteous, 40, 30, 20, 10. See how few there must be and God will still spare us. Which means when God came in judgment on Israel, Do you see how bad they really were? Abraham wants to know, what is the brink? What does it mean for the cup of sin to be full so that God's judgment must come in? And so God's answer deals with this. In this city, and we don't know how many people were in Sodom, maybe a few hundred, maybe a few thousand, but in this city, if only ten people who knew and loved God could be found, He would spare the city. That's God's love for His people. That's God's patience and His forbearance. And how bad is Sodom? Not even ten people will be found. In fact, only one will be found. Only Lot. Lot is a believer in the true God. Um, We are told over and over again in Peter that Lot was a righteous man, though his faith was very fragile. He made lots of foolish decisions, but he was truly a saved man. And only he and his two daughters will make it out of the city alive. God will spare them. But that's all. There are no others in the city. That's how bad Sodom had become. There's no salt and light there. There's no positive godly influence. The the city is all unbelief. The city is all darkness. So what does this tell Abraham about how God will deal with Israel? How bad must Israel be for God to come to to judge them? God is so patient and His love so enduring that only after Israel has become utterly corrupt will He come in and destroy them. And to see why this, why this is so important, you need to understand then what it sounded like to Israel, particularly to Jerusalem and Judah. When the prophet Isaiah comes speaking the word of the Lord, and the prophet Isaiah says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What was he saying to the people of Jerusalem and Judah when he said that? He said, do you see how utterly corrupt you've become? There's there's no hope. There are no righteous within you. Oh, maybe a tiny remnant, but not enough. The king, corrupt. The priests, corrupt. The people, corrupt. In Isaiah's day, truly, only a very tiny remnant remained 
and it wasn't enough. And God came in and destroyed them. Not utterly, not utterly, but he did wipe them out. If I understand the Bible correctly, this is what we should expect at the end of the world as well. People will have been saved from every tongue, tribe, and nation, yet altogether, these saved people will be a tiny remnant in a world that has become utterly corrupt. They will be like ten, not even ten, in a city of a few hundred or a few thousand. So will be Christians at the end of the world. The world will be full of unbelief and darkness. When will Jesus return in judgment? When will Jesus come to this world like He is here coming into Sodom to bring fire and brimstone and judgment upon this world? It will be when the world has become that bad. When God's justice can bear it no longer. He has been merciful for so long. He has been patient for so long so that people have an opportunity to turn and to repent. But when the world has become this bad, He will come. Jesus will come Himself like He does here. Jesus will come with His angels like He does here. He will come and see for Himself like He does here. The picture of the judgment of Sodom is a picture of the judgment of the world. As we see from the words of Jesus and the apostles in the book of Revelation, the New Testament often looks back to Sodom and says, See the end of the world. This is what it will be like. Remember I told you this morning, Jesus said to his disciples that if they are his friends, well, then he lets them know what is happening. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. Behold, I have called you friends. Right? Well, here's another way in which God lets us in on the mystery of what He's doing in the world. You want to know how the world is going to end? Study Sodom. Study these passages. So we're interested because this has to do with us. This has to do with our world. Abraham is interested because this has to do with his people and the nation that's going to come from him. But that's not the only reason he's asking Certainly he's asking these questions because he's concerned for Lot, for his nephew. That's the second reason he's asking. He he wants to know if, if there are righteous people in Sodom like Lot, then surely God will take that into account. Surely God will not wipe away the righteous with the wicked. He doesn't want his nephew to perish. And what does God teach in the story of Sodom? He teaches that the righteous will not perish, for Lot is saved. And so it will be for Christians on the last day when God's judgment comes, when, when Jesus and the saints who have gone before us and the angels come in judgment, those who are truly His will be spared and they will escape judgment on the last day just as Lot barely escapes the fire on Sodom. And then the third reason why Abraham may have been asking these questions is that he might have been considering the possibility that there was still hope for Sodom. He might have been considering, is there not hope for Sodom? As Abraham looked down on this city, it is possible that he was moved with compassion. And what he was thinking is this, well, if there were just 50 people in that city, 50 who know God and love God, then perhaps that can be enough for them to make a difference and to bring that city to repentance. Maybe even if there's just 45, 
that would be enough. Or maybe, maybe if there was just 30 or, or 20 or even 10, that would be enough of God's people there to be a leavening influence. Right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump, a positive kind of leaven that these people, perhaps standing for God's truth, would bring about a great revival. There still might be hope for Sodom if there's even but just 10 there to be salt and light. But as we've seen, Sodom didn't even have that. Where there are Christians standing for truth, there is hope for a city, a community, a world. But Sodom was devoid of hope. There was no church in Sodom, just one believing man who was still very confused about a lot of things. Well, as we near the end of our study of this chapter, let me note a few ways in which Abraham's conversation with the Lord sets an example for us in our own conversations with God. Because what we have here is Abraham interceding for others. He's coming before God. He's seeking every possible way of mercy for his nephew. And if there's any other righteous in Sodom, he wants God to have mercy on them. Indeed, he wants God to have mercy on the whole city. He is engaging in what we call intercessory prayer. He is interceding on behalf of others before God. You and I, as Christians, are to be a people of intercessory prayer. I wonder how much of your time in prayer is spent talking to God about your own needs and your own problems nothing wrong with that. But how much of your time is spent bringing those things to God compared to time spent interceding for others? True love for others will always show itself in going before God and praying for them. How many of us in this room are walking with the Lord today because someone was interceding in prayer for us? How many of us in this room have known God's grace in tough seasons of our lives because people were praying for us? Even now as I preach, I have good reason to believe that God will work and that He will use these things that we see in God's Word to change hearts and to to build us up. And why do I believe that? Because I have confidence in myself? No. But because I believe that many of you pray for these services and you intercede for this church family before God, saying, God, bring blessings through the preaching. Make these things effective. And that's the kind of people we're to be, people of intercessory prayer. Let me ask you this. If spiritual maturity was to be measured by how much time we spend on our knees praying for others, How would you fare? Might I suggest that this is a surer sign of spiritual maturity than coming to church, reading our Bibles, or even talking about God with others? Because intercessory prayer is evidence that we truly trust God, that we truly believe that He has power to change lives, that we truly believe that He is gracious and merciful. And it also reflects our love for others. Faith and hope and love come together in intercessory prayer. 
Did you notice that as Abraham spoke with the Lord in these verses, he drew upon God's own character, right? Surely you, the righteous judge, will not do that. He, he praised God's character back to him. And it's interesting that that's a pattern set for us in the Scriptures, especially the Psalms. Have you ever noticed how much in the Psalms David praised God's character back to God? Right? David will cry out for mercy, Oh God, be merciful to me. And then he'll say, For you are a God who delights in mercy. Or he will cry out concerning his enemies, Oh God, stop the enemies from the things they're trying to do to me. Hinder their plans. For you are a God of righteousness and you are a God of justice. He often pleads God's character when he brings his petitions to God. Well, so also, when we pray, we ought to often pray God's character back to Him. Even when we are interceding for others, when we are praying for our lost loved ones, we can go to God and say, Oh God, I know You love to show mercy. You have told me in Your Bible that You delight in showing grace. So, Oh God, hear me. Look at this person that I love. See them in their sin. See how far away this person is from you. Here is an opportunity, O oh Lord, for you to share how great your grace really is. Will you hear me, Lord? You say you love to be merciful. Be merciful. It's called wrestling with God in prayer. God calls you to do it. It's good for your soul. Well, we see this set as a pattern for us in the Scriptures, a pattern of praying God's character back to Him. I would encourage you to make that a part of your prayer life. We also see in Abraham's conversation an example of humility. He knows who it is that he's speaking to. He knows that he is dust and ashes compared to the Lord to whom he's speaking. So also, when we come before God in prayer, we must come with a humble heart, knowing who we are, knowing who He is, and knowing what that means. God is the potter. We are the clay. We have no right to think that we can go to God in prayer and tell Him what to do. We can't. We can only ask. We can only plead. We can only cry out. But ultimately, we must submit ourselves and say, Thy will be done. And yet what is great about Abraham's prayer is that he prays not just with humility, but with boldness. Do you see the mix in there? He is both bold, he continues to go further, but what about 30, but what about 20? But what about, he continues to be courageous and to, and to be bold in his prayer, even as he acknowledges who he is before God, even as he is marked by this humility in his prayer. When we pray, we should be marked by humility and boldness. Humility because of who we are as sinners and all that we deserve and boldness because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, because He has opened the way up for us to go to God as our Father. Jesus Christ has done everything necessary so that we can go to the throne of grace with boldness as God's children, knowing that He loves us and He will not turn us away. Finally, we also see Abraham's example of fervency. He is persistent. 
in his prayer. He continues the conversation. He doesn't stop with 50. He, he, he goes further. He continues wrestling with the Lord. He is persistent. He is fervent in his request. So also we are called to be fervent and persistent in our own prayers, not letting go of God until we have received the blessing we are praying for. Unless, of course, God shows us we shouldn't be praying for it. But if we have reason to believe that what we are praying for is a good thing, then God calls us to pray for it constantly and to go to Him again and again and again and again and to not grow weary and to not get tired and to not be discouraged, but to keep going to Him again and again, being persistent, being fervent, for He will hear and in His time He will answer. Let us not cease to lay hold of Him in prayer until He has proven Himself faithful to the desires of our hearts. Mount Hermon, let us be a people of prayer. Amen.